Thoth Hermes podcast. Welcome to the world of the Western esoteric tradition. friends and listeners and welcome to a new episode of the Thoth Hermes podcast. Today is Sunday the 5th of September, September already in 2021 and my name is Rudolf. I am as always your host here on the Thoth Hermes podcast. Great to have you back. Thanks for coming. Thanks for listening and I hope you'll enjoy our show which will talk about Sumerian, Babylonian, Mesopotamian deities and how to worship them today. My interview partner is Samuel David, who recently has published a book on that subject, but more about that in just a moment. Right, um, it's great to have you back as always. And uh, if it's the first time that you are here on this show, or maybe one of the first times, let me just tell you that if you want to get more information, you should go on our website, which is thoshermes.com. That's T-H-O-T-H-E-R-M-E-S.com. You will find all that you need there, all the show notes, all the episodes, and of course, also the possibility to leave me some feedback. I know every time I urge you about that feedback, but it would be really nice to get some I do get some, of course, but it's always better to even get more. So please get in touch. Do let me know what you think about the show. Do let me know if you have ideas how to improve it or guests that you would like to hear here. Um, I'll see what I can do about that. And uh, well, also, if you have just some criticism or so, do let me know. Uh, it's always important to improve on our end. You can do that via email, info at thoughthermes.com, but on the website you have a contact form and you can even leave me a voicemail there. There is a voicemail tab on all pages of this website and just click on it and you can send me a 1 minute 30 seconds free voicemail, which is always near, nice to hear your voice over there. Right. But a great response for last week's um, show. That's that's lovely. I was very happy about that. And, um, well, we always get quite a good response. But, well, this week was particular and that's nice. And, um, well, uh, I also wanted to thank all the patrons of the show who are supporting the show. Thank you for that. And you know what's coming now. Um, yes, uh, would be lovely to have you as a patron as well. You, yes, you out there. Right. I'll let you know something. Um, this coming week, I will announce a few new goodies, at least one already, and adv uh, give some advance view on one or two other goodies for patrons, finally, because um, they have been supporting the show just like that for a long time. And finally, I'll be able to return a few goodies, but of course, also to attract you who are not yet patrons to come on this uh, on this support bunch of people who who help make this show happen so please 
uh, find out. I'll post it on Facebook and Twitter and become a patron on patreon.com and go to the Sauce Hermes podcast there. Or much easier, go on the website sauceermes.com and there you'll have a Patreon button. Very easy, just click there and you'll find your way from $1 per show. You are with us. And if you prefer a one-off donation, that's also possible. There is a donation button on our website, which will help you with that. Thanks a lot. Uh, it's really needed and uh, we are very grateful for your support. Perfect. So, as always, let's do some music now. I'm bringing back and it's not only it is it first place because I love his music, but also because uh, the music is just a perfect fit for here today, especially the second title that we are going to play in between the two parts of the interview is a perfect fit. Um, you remember probably Hassan Ismail, a young musician uh, from the Middle East, but who lives in the United States and who we have already played his music on this show twice. So today he is back. And the first piece is a bit longer than usual. It's an eight minute piece, but I really find it so nice and also a really good fit. The piece is called Surreal. So let's just lean back and listen to surreality, so to speak. Right? So welcome back to the show, Hassan Ismail. And let's listen to Surreal. Enjoy.
Mesopotamian Gods Live Again. That's the title of the preface uh, written by Jack Grail of that wonderful book, um, Rod and Ring, which has brought me together with Samuel David. Rod and Ring, published by Anathema Publishing, very recently just been released. And uh, well, in it, uh, as you can tell, we speak about Mesopotamian gods, that's to say Babylonian gods, Sumerian gods. But it's not merely a historical book. It's a book where Samuel David, uh, who is a practitioner of the religion, you might say, the practitioner of um, the, the divine uh, arts that are linked to Mesopotamian religion, uh, who has written that book. And after a short introduction, which is a forced historical book, because he got to know all that also through research in history. And of course, you do not invent Mesopotamian religion like that. So he uh, is really actively worshipping and he has given us a manual to do the same. He has given us a manual. I You can also call it, if it were magic, you can also call it a grimoire, so to speak. And uh, in that, I even mentioned that in an interview, which reminds me a little bit of the book of Flesh and Feather, which we were speaking about here with Reverend Zemi a few weeks ago on Egyptian religion, because Samuel David, in a way, he has the same approach to Sumerian religion than Zemi has to the old Egyptian religions. So very fascinating, very interesting. And uh, I'm very, very happy to introduce you to that guy. Uh, Samuel David. Um, usually at this moment now I would read you some lines from his book and uh, no worries, you're going to hear some lines from his book. But I thought, well, why should he not himself read that? Uh, I wanted him to read a short excerpt from one of those invocations, I would call that, to one of the deities um, that that he wrote for this book and Samuel accepted to do so. So now I'll shut up and uh, let Samuel recite and pray or intone, whatever you would like to call it, um, that passage from his book, Rot and Ring. I have stood in your presence, O mighty ones. I have stood in your presence, O gods. I have stood in your presence, O powers of heaven, earth, and the underworld. I, having been fashioned in your likeness, have been saved as Atrahasis, Ziasudra, and Utnapishtum. I, having been fashioned in your hands from blood and clay, have descended as Urnama. I, having been fashioned in your image, have ascended as Adapa. I have climbed your holy hill. I have entered the threshold of your temple. I have stood before your shrine as the supplicant in your innermost chamber. Fascinating. Thank you, Samuel. Well, 
I'd say without much further ado, let's go now and meet Samuel in person and listen to that talk I had with him. I think there's lots of things that you can learn from it. I learned, as usual, I do in this show, a lot from my guest again here today. Um, before we go there to central US to speak to him, uh, let's just remind you that in the middle of this interview, so after about, say, 35 minutes, uh, we're going to hear some music again from Hassan Ismail and, um, of course, a third piece of music after the interview. Uh, but for the time being now, let's go off and meet with Samuel David. Here comes the interview. Well, today I'm very happy to welcome here on the Thos Hermes podcast, um, Samuel David, Samuel, who speaks to us from the from central United States, I believe that's where he is at the moment. And uh, so therefore I say good afternoon to you. It's late at night here in Europe. And I wish you welcome on the Thos Hermes podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. Good evening, Rudolf. It's a pleasure, Samuel. Um, well, the reason why we get together here is a book that you have released very recently. Um, it was sent to me by your publisher, Anathema Publishing, a few days ago only. And I, as always with Anathema, it's a beautiful book and um, the beautiful finishing. But of course, the content is the most important thing that we're going to talk about here today. And it is an initiation into a Mesopotamian mystery tradition and the book is called Rot and Ring. Um, we're going to talk in detail about all that. Um, the first question I have to you, and that will lead us then probably into your personal background at some point. Um, well, as it seems to me when I looked through the book, honestly, I only had it for five days, so I wasn't able to read it thoroughly nor work with it because I think that's what is intended to work with it actually but um, what leads a person living in 2021 to create or recreate rituals and almost a grimoire as it looks to me to work with Mesopotamian divinity where did that start for you that is a nuanced question, actually. Um, I come from a Christian background, a charismatic Christian background. And throughout my childhood, the emphasis during Sunday school was the biblical heroes. And as I'm reading the Bible for myself as a young child, I come across various cultures and various gods that are mentioned in the Bible. And I had questions about those gods because of the treatment that those those people, those cultures uh, experienced. And the questions that I were at that I asked were usually uh, answered in the form of, uh, well, the word of God is is inerrable or uh, is not subject to questions. So if you have questions, you need to pray about it. And as I'm reading the Bible, as I'm studying the Bible, Again, as a child, I start looking to other resources outside of the Bible to supplement uh, what I'm reading. And I happened upon uh, Babylonian spirituality specifically. And from there, 
doing my own research. I had access to uh, literature from certain Christian authors of the time, certain Christian biblical scholars who had their own take, which led me even further down the road to uh, more research. And in addition to that, I was also looking to other avenues of spirituality. And among those, those various avenues that I came across, I encountered paganism, neo-paganism to be specific. However, the majority of content that is available to someone who is looking into alternative spiritualities, especially in the neo-pagan uh, pagan com community as a whole, most of it is Eurocentric. While that's yeah. not an issue that I have, it didn't speak to me as a person. It didn't speak to my innate spiritual needs. So I found myself looking to more historical sources and that has led me to where I am today in a nutshell. Thank you. Well, your answer, which is a very clear answer, but it opens a whole lot of new questions to me and I hope to your to our audience as well. Um, because, okay, just to be precise, when you said you were looking into Christian authors of the time, um, you mean of the time that you were looking at, so of the whatever 1980s or, or what time did you mean by that or older, older Christian authors? In the authors? late... Yeah, in the late 80s, early 90s, and a lot of my research was drawn from the books that were available in the church library. And right. most of those books were obviously written from a Christian lens with some preconceived notions informed by uh, largely uh, Greek writers, interestingly enough. So a lot of the, the conceptions of Babylonian cults and Sumerian cults and and pantheons and the religion as a whole was viewed through that lens which was already decidedly anti-Christian or anti-pagan mm -hmm. very staunchly mm -hmm. Christian even seen by the charismatic Christian writers I would guess as um, uh, well Babylon was even well oh the, 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 the bad thing in itself absolutely right. absolutely right. mystery right. Babylon right. mother of absolutely Earth. absolutely but uh, let's just be precise and you can be precise I'm not and um, I called it Mesopotamian you called it Babylonian and Sumerian maybe you can in order not to mix our audience up you can uh, tell us a bit the distinction between the three or, or exactly what you are talking about so I draw my praxis from the Mesopotamian culture as a whole. I initially started my my introduction was Babylonian mystery cults, Babylonian uh, mystery traditions, as found in those texts that I had access to. And the more I read, the more I become informed that the culture started in Mesopotamia, largely with the early Sumerians from them. Mm -hmm the mm -hmm. religious traditions and cultural practices were incorporated into the Akkadian uh, culture. And then from there, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Gudeans. So it's, it's very much a, a melting pot. When I say Mesopotamia, I'm referring to all of the cultures as a whole. Um, when I'm referring to the Sumerians, it is obviously the Sumerians, Babylonians, yeah. obviously the Babylonians, but to many, um, and, and there's nothing wrong with this. Uh, to many, it's 
Babylonian and that describes yeah. everything. Yeah. So, so so maybe Mesopotamia is more a geographical uh, term and the others is more a people's terms and their correct. religions, right? Correct. Mm -hmm. We can thank mm -hmm. the Greeks for, for coming up with all sorts of wonderful terms to describe things. <laughs> exactly. Um, Herodot at first, exactly. Well, when, when I hear about you, and also even when I received the description of the book in advance and then the book itself, I could not help think of someone I had here on this podcast about two and a half months ago, which I even saw, I think you thank him in also in the introduction or in the thankings of the book. That's Zemi. Uh, oh, yes. Don't make me, don't make me pronounce his full name. Zemami Jehuti Septentot. I have to read that. <laughs> who, who at first sight, but you, you might tell me that I'm completely wrong. At first sight has a a related approach to Egyptian religion as you seem to have to Babylonian Sumerian religion. Am I right or is your approach completely different from his? Oh, it, you're absolutely correct. What's interesting is I met Zemi several years ago. Uh, I was introduced to Zemi by a mutual friend, Jack Grail. And mm -hmm. at the time, we were all doing our own research, doing our own our own thing, so to speak. And the more we became acquainted with each other, the more we realized that our interests, our spiritual praxis, our area of focus, philosophy, if you will, was very complementary. So we started exchanging notes. We met on a regular basis. We participated in the rituals that that each of us were leading. And then from there, it's, it's just, Uh, it's a harmonious, uh, syncretic uh, union of minds, so to speak. So there's a lot right. of parallels with his praxis, a lot of parallels mm -hmm. with my praxis. So they meet in the middle and we can we can talk shop, so to speak, <laughs> which might even be historically accurate. That's uh, to some extent. We don't Absolutely. know exactly, but uh, it might well be the case that those religious practices at the time were also um, not incompatible, I would say. Oh, yeah. absolutely. Into the Assyrian period, um, the the Assyrian culture at a certain point became rather Egyptianized, so to speak. So as mm -hmm. their empire expanded, they encountered all of these these cultures in the Mediterranean region. And then prior to them, the Babylonians were right. were pretty prevalent in the area. So nothing was was new to these people. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, but you don't have any ethnic background from the area or so you are, you are not in any way, ha have not inherited anything, any background from, from that part of the world, have you? Actually, I have. I was born in northern Pakistan. My mother is a Pakistani right. woman mm -hmm. and uh, I had my genealogy traced as many do because we want to be excited about our ethnic culture and have something to talk sure. about at dinner parties. And my ethnic background consists of Iran, Iraq um, into northern Africa. So pretty much the 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 Middle Eastern world as a whole from Turkey to to Pakistan. Definitely. 
Yeah, yeah. So, so there might be some genetic link to that to that idea. <laughs> well, some genetic knows? ancestral ancestral memory that's finally awakened. Exactly, a very occult subject. Anyway, that is um, no, but but uh, maybe you can go a bit more into detail. You said you were in that Christian church. You you asked those questions. Uh, well, you got the standard answer that every uh, everyone would get and you were different you were going further but how do you go further i mean it's not yes you go to the library you set that off the church but as we as you said yourself that's limited you could at, uh, at best learn that this is a bad part uh, of religion and um, but why why and how what happened that you went further and discovered that in and around you There's a book written by a biblical historian, um, and it's the Haley's Bible Handbook. Mm -hmm. And in that text, it refers to the early Sumerian culture as being monotheistic, which is interesting because when you study the culture, it is clearly not. There are over 1,500 gods. There's no way that a culture with 1,500 plus gods was anywhere other than than polytheistic. So as I'm reading this, I'm I'm looking into all of these other resources, again, very anti-pagan, very pro-Christian. And over the years, I found myself dancing the tango, so to speak, with Christianity and polytheism and and questioning my my place in the Christian church and my spiritual upbringing. And at a certain point, I decided that in order to perhaps reconcile myself with Christianity, I could perhaps go into Christian ministry. Maybe that would afford me the education that would be needed in order to understand all of these these various things that, that I was encountering. And it was studying Christian apologetics that really opened the door. And the more I read, the more I studied, And the more I tried to invest myself into Christian apologetics, the more I realized that everything keeps leading me back to Sumer. All roads lead to Sumer, mm -hmm. so to speak. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I had all of these, these spiritual experiences that informed that. And I decided, well, this is my, my jump off point and I need to, to decide which direction I'm going to. How old were you at that stage? I was in my early 20s at this point, okay. and my praxis became much more formalized into my mid-20s, early 30s. Mm -hmm. um, when you talk about your praxis, now I'm not going into the book as yet, right? Uh, stay more with you. With, with, <laughs> You're supposed with to read your, the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, no, but uh, yeah, I want to know a bit more about the person before we talk about the book. But um, where did you find the... the the start for your rituals because i mean you don't say okay now i create a mesopotamian ritual or a sumerian ritual um, you have to have something inside yourself or maybe you find text and combine that with what you feel how how did that occur 
all of the material that's in the book and in my own praxis has been derived from historical translations, uh, scholarly articles, and and other related dry, dusty texts that one would not find on a bookshelf in the pagan section of a bookstore. So, right. Um, I'm I'm very thankful that I have access to that content because without that content, I don't know what I would be doing or or where mm -hmm. I would be spiritually. Because it seems, I mean, you can find all kinds of books about Egypt, ancient Egypt, etc., and and inform yourself quite well. Of course, it is possible with with that part of the world, but it sounds a little bit more difficult. That first the first approach must be more more demanding, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. And and further to your point with regards to Egypt, I believe that I firmly believe that the majority of content that we have about Egypt, the the fetishization of Egyptian culture historically. Mm. I think a lot of that has to do with the the study of Egyptology at the time and those films that that were produced following that study, such as Cleopatra, The Ten Commandments, uh, films like that. Mill and all that. Yeah. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, yeah. That really, mm. that was a driving cultural force at the time. And definitely. You know, clearly it's it's obvious when you when you look at pagan authors and occult authors and the, the prevalence of Egyptian texts that are available. Uh, do, are you saying that uh, because of that um, fetish, fetishization, as you said, that's a very nice word for that. Um, do you think that the fact that with Sumer and Babylon, this is maybe less the case and less obvious in any case. Um, may, would that make it easier for you to dig and to find uh, answers or would that make it more difficult? I would say it made it slightly more difficult. Now, don't take me wrong when when I say that there are, are few texts to refer to in, in an occult sense or esoteric sense, there are available texts. We have the Necronomicon, Simon's Necronomicon, which largely is drawn, aside from the, the Cthulhu mythos of Lovecraft, it's largely drawn from historical tablets that have been translated. And you know that was a part of my spiritual practice at the time. It gave me some sort of a background to work with in a in a tangible manner, so to speak. So it was from there that I realized that there are cultural texts to refer to. There are ritual and esoteric texts to refer to. And that led me further in my research. Right. Where would you get those texts from? I mean, without wanting to be uh, sneaking around, but what, how did you go for it? Delving into the historical section and, and cultural studies of, of the library. So that, that was my, my boon, my balm in a weary land, so to speak. Right, right. Okay, now taking it from there, um, how should we 
imagine such a ritual to 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 happen what i mean we know all kinds of ritual all people who listen to this show have their own practice i think i suppose which is maybe ceremonial magic or oto or or you name it right chaos magicians whatever um how how should people who are informed about ritual in general imagine what this religious practice contains how would it how would it work well one it does not rely on any western occultism so mm -hmm. there is there's no familiarity so to speak if if someone were to read this text or read any of these these other translations that are available they would find that it's almost completely foreign Mm -hmm. There's there's no there's no formal calling of the watchtowers, so to speak, when one were to perform, perform a ritual. There's there's no drawing circles or triangles or calling upon there's, arcane. There's, there's no elements or whatever. Right. 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 Instead, everything mm -hmm. is is almost drawing from essential items in certain aspects of ritual that were utilized by exorcists and priests two major materials that were used were water and flour to form a dough to create actual circles that were used to demarcate space. So, you know, that was, that was to the Sumerians what, what salt is to many esoteric practitioners in the Western traditions. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Did you, before you started this practice, did you have any experience in Western occultism or other practices of the kind? Oh, absolutely. I found Aleister Crowley fascinating, but also somewhat repulsive. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, as many do, um, as many do, yeah. yeah. And, and I was also informed by, you know, many, uh, many Wiccan writers such as Gerald Gardner and uh, Doreen Valiente. So, I, I would say that my my education in, in paganism or in, in the esoteric world was largely informed by the OTO and uh, and other derivative uh, works and, and traditions. So you did you went through that, so to speak, uh, at the usual age where many people start looking into that and then find their ways, right? Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. So uh, the reason why I asked you that question was um, if you if you had to, I'm not talking about how you do it now, but what's the outcome of it, right? What's the result for you personally? Uh, if you needed to compare um, what you experience when you do a traditional ritual of Western occultism, whichever, uh, and you do your work with the Sumerian deities, um, how does the result differ for you? What is different if there is a difference? The major differences in Mesopotamian culture and Mesopotamian religion and esoteric practice, it was not centered around a, a human model. It was not anthrocentric. So, Unlike Western occult tradition, there's no compulsory element. You're actually mm -hmm. petitioning the gods. You're working in, in tandem with the order that they have established. So if you have no knowledge of the gods, if you have no knowledge of 
of their power, their names, their attending spirits, you can't do anything. Mm. So it's a total reliance. It's yes, go ahead. Uh, how do you get the knowledge? How do you achieve that? Lots of study, lots of devotion. Uh, the majority of my work is actually devotional in nature. So it's from there that I have a, a theurgic approach after developing that, that devotional praxis. So mm -hmm. uh, in addition to that devotional praxis with deities, there are also accompanying spirits. And with those accompanying spirits, there are more tangible results in in things that that have been undertaken in terms of a, a ceremonial working. Right. I actually have never heard what you said before, and you had never heard about that. You, you don't believe it anyway, um, that there had been any monotheistic approach in Sumerian religion at any moment. I, I'm, I'm completely with you. I couldn't imagine that for a second. Uh, um, but so on the contrary, do you in in that um, devotional work, do you have something like a protective deity or do you do you establish a link with a particular deity which is which is closer to you than others, or um, how should we imagine that? So it's interesting that you ask that question. In, in Mesopotamian culture, one, one human is assigned two minor deities, a personal god and a personal goddess, and they are largely mm -hmm. unnamed. Early literature indicates that they are unnamed, but their equivalent, their modern equivalent would be that of a holy guardian angel. So whereas you have the great movers and shakers that oversee the cosmos and universal order, you have this personal God and this personal goddess who's concerned about your well-being and is in charge of your your development, your, you know, your spiritual growth, your your physical growth. In that same vein, you have to maintain a mutually respectful relationship with these beings. If you fall out of favor with these beings, they abandon you. So that's that's a big uh, driving factor in my praxis. Not so much one that's driven by fear, but one that's that's largely driven or wholly driven by mutual respect, mutual a mutually beneficial relationship. So it's from them that I have also developed. Uh, um, mutually beneficial uh, praxis with one could essentially say daemons and those are intermediaries as well that serve as as uh, as intermediaries between men and gods and then above them of course there are the the gods that that are the recipients of, of worship and devotion when you when you say daemons do you mean that in the in the sense that it is normally used in western common language so as a bad spirit or do you more use it in the way the ancient greeks would use it as um, uh, as the your own spirit guide when you say daemon uh, largely in in the way that the the ancient greeks utilized that term right so it's it's not a negative term in correct that so right in accordance with with universal order and the divine laws that that are set forth by the gods 
even malevolent beings, malevolent spirits are subject to their will. So they cannot sure. act on their own volition. They have to act in accordance with, with universal order. So there are, are good demons. There are bad demons. There's, you know, it runs the gamut. Of course. Yeah. Well, the, the, the Latin, the ancient Latin translation of daimon was genius genius right so it's it's that i think that explains it all anyway right um I, i wasn't completely innocent when i asked you about those personal relationships to to minor deities um because of course and um i would like to know your opinion on that it of course that relates and it, it is a very ancient religion um that relates a lot to what shamanism also tells you right that in shamanism you have well call it a protection animal or whatever you call it but it's it, it differs a bit from north american shamanism to siberian siberian shamanism but the principle is the same you build a relationship to uh, a spirit somehow Correct. Um, do, do you think that um, sumerian religion has its ancient shamanic rules or relations I want to say yes, and and that statement is largely based on on depictions that we have of not just Sumerian but later in antiquity the Assyrian cultures. Um, from a from an outside standpoint, you see figures that are dressed in in certain regalia, that are dressed as fish, that are dressed in in lion pelts, that are wearing lion heads. And while that on the surface, oh, that's shamanism. At the same time, there is a, a deeply spiritual praxis that we all know. Um, if if we are aware of what shamanism is, what what these these indigenous practices involve, and that isn't to say that they had no relationship with greater gods. But the majority of, of the, the working relationship was with the, the ancestors that one has, the, uh, the attending spirits that one has, the intermediaries that one has, you know, between humans and gods. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, in that sense where... Maybe that's difficult to answer, but um, you live in North America. You you use that praxis for your personal development and work. Um, but at the time, or maybe even today, do you think that that kind of religion is also very much geographically based? I mean, does it need the, the land, so to speak, to exist and to develop and to delve or 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 is it independent of that is, is there more to it than that there is a, a large dependence upon the land more specifically the the rivers the tigris and the euphrates rivers mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. those were the life the life-giving forces in the area. They sustained the environment. They ensured you know, the fertility of the land with, with silt deposits and, and the rising uh, tides, the floods. So without that, there would be no culture historically that, that we know today. Very similar to the Nile in Egypt, of course. Absolutely. Right. Uh, and do you think that the, the way that religion developed and came into being also was um, related to, to that land and to that cycle of the year? 
Absolutely. Absolutely. And thankfully, I live in a region that has similar cycles. In the Midwest, we, the, the region in which I live, we rely on the Mississippi River and those various tributaries that actually feed the lands uh, around us. In fact, where I live, I literally live between two rivers. So I have okay. a Mesopotamia of my own that ensures the fertility of the land by feeding aquifers, ensuring the the fertility of the land by, you know, maintaining crops and the local livestock and, and various things that that support our our gross domestic product in the state. Yeah, no, and I, I personally strong belief that we we are also in our magic let's put it that way magical religion we are influenced by the land and by what happens over the cycle and the rhythm of the day of the year and of the life Absolutely. in general uh, and and think that's a strong influence there and and that's why also i i asked that question if it ever bear any relationship to shamanism because of course there you have that as well of course right um when when we speak about about mesopotamia and about sumer and uh, babylon of course uh, you think about many of those aspects that you read in the in the in the old testament of the bible in the talmud because um there is a strong link there even religious wise right and um in certain occult circles, I do not belong to that to that part, but uh, I respect it, and I have I have read a lot about it. Of course, then you have also that um, how should I put that um, that aspect of an extraterrestrial influence on old Sumer, right? Um, be it the Watchers and and all that. Um, in your opinion, and I'm not talking about you believe about that, but I, in your opinion and the and the religion that you practice, do you think that that creed has existed and influenced that religion? Or is it like other uh, paganist religious religious systems um, independent of such a I, I hate the word extraterrestrial in, in that in that respect, because it's something else. It's it's something that came from outside, so to speak, into that religion. Do you see is that aspect something that that you find important or is that completely strange to the practice that you have? I don't think it's it's at all strange. The the concept of of humanity to the ancient people was that while the gods were simultaneously existing outside and within, you know, they they were ever present, they were always watching. They were involved with with maintaining creation, universal order. So you have humanity at at the lowest order of of the totem pole, so to speak, where the the lowest on on the pecking order. Hmm. So there's always that that watchfulness um, in in early myth. You have creation existing, or rather, being brought forth out of the great cosmic sea. So you have uh, the goddess uh, Nama, who is the embodiment of the sea, the goddess of the sea itself. And then from her come successive generations of gods. The Babylonian uh, analog of that is found in the Enuma Elish, where humanity 
is created by the gods and then prior to humanity's creation all of the gods descended from uh, Tiamat the the primal cosmic ocean as well mm -hmm. and that that's an, an image that we find in ancient Greece or even well in ancient Greece basically there's a lot of that as well isn't it yeah absolutely yeah. absolutely some yeah. greater outside force that that moves and and has its being. Okay, now let's take a little break in this lovely interview and listen to some music. Right, we are going to hear today again music from Hassan Ismail, who has been twice already on this show, showing, giving us his music. Uh, and thanks a lot for that, Hassan. Uh, we are really enjoying that. And well, the piece that I'm going to play for you now. Its title is really just like if he had made it for the show. It's called From Tigris to Euphrates. So really the two rivers that um, Samuel is talking about in this interview and of course that have created the land where the religion that we are talking about here today has come from and has generated. So, um, well, yes, uh, that will be from... Tigris to Euphrates, but um, just to remind you, immediately after the piece of music, we will return to speak to Samuel David. And uh, at the end of the interview, which will last another about 32 minutes, uh, I will then play a third piece of music. And that one is also, of course, by Hassan Ismail, and it's called Pyramids of Light. So now we go down to the land of the two rivers we go to from tigris to euphrates enjoy
let's start talking about the book about the book that is called rod and ring right and also your website is now called rod and ring i saw um well why rod and ring what's what gave the title to that book well the rod and ring are actually the symbols of divine order in in the stele of of hammurabi the god shamash is presenting the rod and ring or at least showing the rod and ring to to hammurabi and mm -hmm. the rod represents the measuring line or the the ruler so to speak and then the ring could be either an actual ring of a chaplet of beads uh, more more scholars have actually purported and and the theory is actually uh, proven in in translations and in, in supporting texts that the ring is actually a coil of rope so these symbols were instrumental in in signifying the god's order signifying the order of creation the order of, of civilization so you have various gods who possess these these items and i don't know from there i just saw that that imagery and thought how does one incorporate something like that you know we have we have the the pentagram for wiccans we have Uh, we have Thor's hammer for for the heathen movement. We have all of these iconic symbols, but what mm -hmm. is the unifying symbol of Mesopotamian spirituality? Sure, yeah, yeah. I okay. think that it's the rod and ring. Right, right. Well, um, a fair, fair enough explanation, of course. Um, uh, what what made you decide to? to write a book about it and um, before we come to the content itself because of, as I said to me it's it's a lot like a ritual book I'd, I'd, I'd almost call it a grimoire even in that context possibly it's it's wrong to name it like that but um, uh, what made you decide okay I have to write a book about this I wrote the book that I would want I, I would have wanted years ago. So mm -hmm. this was what one could say that this started out as as a vanity project, but um, <laughs> <laughs> I had no intention whatsoever of, of submitting this for publication until uh, Jack Grail twisted my arm and convinced me to do so. Uh, mm -hmm. Prior to that, everything was was written for my own personal use. It was written for my own communities, my own spiritual communities use. So the, uh, the local pagan group that, that I led, uh, was, was my beta test group for a lot right. of this ritual content. I shared it with members of the online community who also, uh, incorporate Mesopotamian spirituality in their, their well, spiritual practices. Well, then, there, there you bring me to a point that I was going to ask, but let's do that now, because as you as you bring it up um, and we go to the book, uh, back to the book in a minute, um, you started doing that practice. I guess at the time you, you were quite alone. I don't know uh, if you if you if you had if you had uh, people around you who said, oh, I'm interested in that as well. I, I don't know, but I I wouldn't think so. And how is it today do you i hear now that you have people around you who practice 
with you together in the group, um, yes. also online. But how did that all start? I mean, you don't put an ad in the paper and said, "I want to, I want to create a Mesopotamian uh, uh, worship uh, group." Um, call me. Uh, how how did that come together? Well, it would not have come together without the power of the internet. So you know, while I right. was practicing on my own, and at one point had given up any hope in finding a a local community or even an online community. Um, I just decided that I was going to do my own thing and buried in the search results of a Google search, I found that there were actual uh, communities, both organized on a local basis, but also in an online sense. So there's a community in Texas called Twin Rivers Rising. Uh, there is a community in California, the Temple of Inanna and Dumuzi. Um, mm -hmm. And there's uh, there's a, a community in, in Portugal as well. So there are all these tiny communities, but and thankfully the internet has brought us together because had it not, we would have, we would have just been practicing in isolation, so to speak. And sure. And that has really been been a, a uh, blessing, as it were. And so now in your area, in your surrounding, you are also, ha you have a group there, are you running a group? I was uh, partly leading a group with others, and that gave me the opportunity to uh, lead these rituals. And, you know, when you, you mention, oh, I'm going to lead a ritual to Inanna, everybody is on board because everybody loves Inanna. <laughs> she's the, she's the liberated woman. She's, she's the opposing exactly. force that uh, runs contrary to, to established order. So, you know, yeah, definitely exactly. one that, that brings the crowd. Exactly. Again, you gave uh, you sometimes we seem to reach read each other's minds because I was going to ask you is, um, is that again, a word I, I don't like, but it's used in that way. And I think you understand what I mean. But is uh, that type of religious practice a form of a counterculture? I don't know. That is a good question. I've, I've never been asked that question before. Um, I don't know how to answer that. I would say yes, but then at the same time, I can't say yes, because if we were to look at things from a historical standpoint, the Mesopotamian yeah, yeah. spiritual tradition, it's a state religion. So that was yes. the cultural norm at the time. In a Western, largely Christian society, it's totally the counterculture. Yeah, but the question probably uh, about if it can be a counterculture or not is is its aim is it is it not just a minority program but is it as you just mentioned about Inanna is it about liberation is it about openness um, or is it about something else I, I would define counterculture uh, by this openness and and liberation movement that's why I was asking. Ah, so if one were to solely focus a spiritual praxis on Inanna, yes, absolutely countercultural, you know, liberation, freedom. Um, her cultic personnel were actually uh, comprised or was comprised of um, 
what we would consider today the the LGBTQ plus population. So mm-hmm. she had homosexual priests, she had transgender priests, she had uh, bisexual priests. I mean, it. One would I would imagine that if one were to witness an ancient procession of Inanna's cult, it would be no different than carnival and a pride parade. Just in, in many of the in many of the, mm. the details of, about her worship, about her her cultic personnel. So very sexually liberated. Uh, I don't want to say a free for all, but definitely a, a countercultural sexually liberated. Yeah. Yeah. But that that is, as you say, only part of part of Mesopotamian Sumerian oh, absolutely. The Babylonian religion. That's I mean, not even talking about state religion at the time, but even about the practice you have today. And when I read the book and look in the book, that's that's only a minor part, so to speak, of, of what 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 you transmit here. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, There is a theory, um, uh, maybe you know Jan Asman, the famous Egyptologist here over here in Europe. He is a fervent supporter of that theory, but he's not alone by, by far, um, that it was monotheism that created religious intolerance. Now, in a religion or in a, in a devotional principle, uh, as you practice it with, with so many deities involved, um, Would you would you say that he is right with that theory, and would you say that uh, this time of worship, this part of worship, this way of worship, is in general an open-minded one and open also to other aspects of devotion that do not involve Mesopotamian religion? I would say yes and no. Um, within the Mesopotamian culture, as as various city-states rose to power and and they exerted control over the region, you have uh, iconoclast movements in which uh, depictions of the gods were were destroyed. That was not just to uh, signify the the diminishing you know force that that invading culture had, but it also subjugated that God. It also elevated that culture's God above all of the other mm-hmm. gods. So we have uh, some aspects of that with, with the Assyrian culture in that they elevated their God, Asher, above all of the other gods. He subsumed all of their all of the the roles and responsibilities of the gods um we have we have that analog with marduk as well in the which makes it almost not not quite almost monotheistic again as you just say he tries to assume all the facets of the different right. deities right 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 yeah. and we yeah. have yeah. aspects of that with ishtar as well in later antiquity um the assyrians and and uh some mm-hmm. aspects of, of babylonianism or Babylonian uh, religion and culture seem to to uh, support that idea where she absorbed or subsumed all of these domains and powers of these various goddesses. While they still existed, mm. they existed in a more diminished sense as attending, attending gods and attending goddesses. Yes, well, Ishtar in herself is also, of course, a not only important, but also a highly interesting figure uh, all across even Western occultism, right where she, yeah, she appears absolutely. regularly 
be it through Lilith and and etc etc right Babylon. absolutely and Babylon exactly exactly okay back to your book so you wrote that book and you well you had those texts because you had practiced them you had compiled them you had and then Jack Rail came and said, well, you should get that published. Okay, uh, you found your publisher, which uh, I think that's a very good thing. Uh, and then you wrote that book. And now the question comes, um, who did you write it for? Probably not only for your little bunch of people over in your <laughs> community, but, but you, you want that this is, this is going further. What, what you, what, what's the aim of the book for you? The aim of the book is to present a working praxis, but not so much in the sense that it's completely orthodox because no two individuals have the same religious praxis. You know, we're, we're developing something from the ground up, so to speak. So we don't have the, the staunch organization that dedicants in, in Christianity would, would benefit from, or in Islam, or Judaism, or any of these organized religions would benefit from. So I would like to think of this book as open source software that, that someone could use and develop for their own praxis. I've included a number of rituals to a number of gods that if one were to take them into sequential order, it would provide a, a mythopoetic story Uh, or series of rituals, but if one chose not to, they could just take what they needed and build a praxis from, from those specific rituals that they found uh, that resonated with them. So it is kind of how-to book, to, to put it a bit bluntly? Uh, there is some material that is essentially a, a how-to or a tutorial, and then the rest is essentially... Uh, an example of, of that execution of, of the how-to mm -hmm. material. Mm -hmm. Right. Now, I, I have to dig a bit further in one point where I, I, I would like to hear you a bit, if you can, a bit more um, uh, precise, maybe. Um, you said very early in this interview, you mentioned that you... that this spoke to you somehow you got you get attracted by that not just because those names and stories of the bible but also then something interior happened with you right when you started digging in that maybe even already working with those written materials etc can you describe that process a bit more which 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 chord did it did it did it struck strike in you what 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 happened there can you explain if one can explain an, in, an internal procedure can you can you give us a bit more about that oh yeah absolutely so you know in my in my childhood as i said i'm reading all of these texts and one thing that really resonated with me and resonates to this day there's a passage in jeremiah in which um, you know, there's there's this this push to drive out polytheism and and to reinstate the worship of of Yahweh, and mm -hmm. there's a passage in which the women of the city uh, tell the prophet uh, specifically that when we made offerings 
to the Queen of Heaven um, and poured out drink offerings to her, um, we, we experienced no war, we experienced no famine. But when we put off those offerings, when we stopped doing what we knew and stopped that relationship with this goddess, that's when calamity and ruin fell upon us. And to mm-hmm. this day, when I read that as a child, it was like, this is interesting. But to this day, if if I had not read those, read that passage, I would not be here. Uh, but again, that's just something that's that's resonated with me and something that I want to uh, to carry with me into the future. Do you think um, this was just coincidence or do you have the impression that this was like a call or something that uh, ought to have happened? I, you know, I, I, I like to to maintain some semblance of, of normalcy where, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not entertaining the idea that everyone is called because, you know, even biblical scripture tells us that, uh, many are called, but few are chosen. So, you know, there's a, there's a part of me that thinks maybe that does ring true. Maybe this did resonate with me and something called out to me and, and mm-hmm. I found it in, in some, some manner of speaking. Yeah. Yeah. Thus leading to Now, this book. Exactly. Exactly. Now, if if somebody who is listening to this, or maybe who bought that book uh, and got a bit into it, and said, "Hmm, I would be interested in knowing more about that type of practice, go more in depth," I'm interested. I don't know yet if it's mine, but um, I'm genuinely interested. How? What lead would you give that person? How? Do you think such a person should proceed? What would be the path to take? Well, thankfully, I know what books to recommend, whereas years ago, I would not. I'll do. Um, do. So <laughs> <laughs> I have a recommended reading list. In fact, I uh, compiled it and, and put it on my website. But I'm also, you know, I've narrowed down that list to a specific set of, of core texts that are easily affordable, uh, whether one purchases them uh, brand new or purchases them used. They're they're easier to come by than than one would think. But reading alone will not make the case, right? You you at some point you have to start to practice. Sometime at some point, yes, you will have to start some sort of practice if if you wish to engage with this numinous power exactly and how 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 should such a person take that path how should he or she go along with that i think the only way to to answer that is just by saying one has to keep an open mind um you know there there are many things that that we think are wrong you know, in our undertaking, but there's going to be that, that one aha moment where, oh my gosh, this, this actually works. This is resonating with me. I'm connecting with, with some sort of, of supernatural force or some sort of, uh, as you mentioned, extraterrestrial force. Uh, mm-hmm. um, so superhuman force, whatever you want to call it. So, and you should just be open to, to, to be open to uh, that, to take that, yeah. that initial step. To take that in, basically. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, if uh, if you 
Well, I have to ask that question. I, I tried to, to, to find the right way. When I had done my interview with Zemi a few weeks ago, when I hung up, basically, after he said, I said, hmm, this is, um, for me, I'm 61 now, right? Uh, you are both doing this in big parts through the internet. You have discovered something from personal experience in early, at early age, both of you. It's a, those, it's a kind of parallel stories with a, with a parallel outcome, so to speak. Um, and it, well, to, just to make it a short, um, it, to me, this was very 21st century in a good way. I don't mean that. I don't mean that in any way negative, right? Um, a very contemporary approach that you can suddenly through the internet create a community like that and do something that is somehow very ancient, not only because it's Egypt, but even the way of worshiping, the way of devotionalism sounds rather not 21st century, so to speak. So right. the combination of the two, I find intriguing and fascinating. And um, that's why I also said I have, uh, I wanted to ask you that question here today, having a bit kind of the same experience. It was too late then to ask Sammy because it was only afterwards that I realized that. But maybe you can answer for yourself or maybe for you both or even in general that question. Um, is this a new way of practicing religion in the 21st century or um, how would you define that? I would say it is definitely a new way. These these cultures were, as I had mentioned, they were state religions. So we don't have a state religion now. And it's essentially the responsibility of the devotee, of, of the, the supplicant, to maintain that state religion, so to speak, in their own praxis. So they become the one who is who is responsible for priestly activity or uh, presenting offerings and and prayers and hymns in order to keep but, things but, relevant but, but but is that is that uh um, in your point of view, is that uh, a new opening to a new way of practicing religion in general? Is that a kind of eclecticism or, 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 or what is it? I would say it, it would be a combination of eclecticism and perhaps some sort of uh, formal uh, formal praxis, at least one that's informed by historical text and, and culture, mm. because without mm. that, it, it would be nothing. We have to to look to these cultures to be informed of how these gods were worshipped and how these gods were approached. There's, uh, I, I had alluded to it earlier, there is an actual tablet that has a passage that says that the contents of the tablet should not be uh, shown to those who have no knowledge of the gods. So, you know, without what we have now, no one would have knowledge of these gods. And what knowledge we do have needs to, in my opinion, needs to be built upon in order to make these these cultural and and esoteric practices relevant in the 21st Mm. century. Yeah. Otherwise, they remain uh, lost to the past. 
But there, exactly in that point, I see a major change of paradigm in in between then in the, in the past, the being even even still in the seventeenth, eighteenth centuries, and nowadays, because um, this sounds very to say well those who don't know about it are not to be shown that text is very um elitist in a way as an approach oh, um, absolutely where uh, yeah, whereas you could also say and modern esotericism uh, often says that as well and i don't mean a kind of uh, esotericism new age esotericism i mean serious western occultism says well you can give out israel regardi was one of those right you can give out all those texts of the golden dawn because you can read them and that will preserve the text otherwise it will get lost but it will only be understood by the person who practices right, it right um, now would you uh, that's what i mean also by 21st century right and um, would you be of the opinion that um a book like yours is here to be used but only the person who will really do the practice and go deep into it will understand and get also that out of it that that you want to convey absolutely absolutely um and and i wrote this not just with a a spirit model in mind i wrote this for those who approach things from an archetypal standpoint or assuming a god mask um because you know again no two spiritual praxis are are the same so your iteration of, of of an esoteric praxis would not be the same as mine just as it would not be the same as, as that of my neighbor and acknowledging that is very modern and contemporary yeah absolutely there is right. there is no my way or the highway it's you know this is again open source software i want everyone to take exactly this Exactly. And I think I think that's a very I personally think that's a very contemporary way of seeing things. And, and that's where I was going for. Right. Right. Now, um, we have a few minutes left, uh, um, Samuel. Um, tell me a bit about how you see your personal future in relation to this of course will there be other books will you will it, do you get the feeling that that more should are and will be done by yourself by others about that kind of religion and devotion what where does the future lead that i have started a nonprofit that the sole the sole purpose of that nonprofit is to uh, provide that visibility to individuals in the Mesopotamian spiritual current. Um, I also have a temple that I founded in in my part of, of the U.S., a Sangamon or Temple Sangamon, and uh, I've organized, of course, various events. Um, in addition to this book, I am also currently working on a manuscript for a follow-up, um, which will have much of the same format, but I want this next book to be more scholarly in the sense that it's going to present a working praxis. But if one were to uh, want to dive into the historical aspect and, and the research that went into this book, I'm providing that as well. So 
that book is going to largely focus or solely focus on the god Demuzid, who one could call him the Sumerian Christ because he has a lot of iconography, a lot of um, his epithets are very similar. He's called the Good Shepherd. He's um, you know the bride. He's the bridegroom looking for his bride. So the man of sorrow. So there's there's a lot of parallels there that I want to explore um, because I do want to. I don't know. Maybe it's maybe it's my vanity speaking. I do want to be instrumental in some way of reviving a a working uh, cult, so to speak, of this God and and of those gods that that resonate uh, with me and would also resonate with others. Uh, these gods that I do have, or at least sense some some uh, relationship, some sort of relationship dynamic with. Right, right. So when do you think we can expect such a book to happen? I anticipate that this manuscript will be completed by the end of this year. So once okay. it's, it's mm -hmm. completed, I'm going to send it to Gabriel with an right. and uh, yeah. the best. <laughs> okay, let's keep fingers crossed. We'll push him a little bit. Um, great. Last question, um, because that's always something that personally interests me. Um, the way of using those texts, those ritual texts, um, is this just, just, well, I don't mean that in any uh, negative way, but just reading them loudly, or is it a kind of chanting? Is, is voice and the use of voice, because that's my business, you know, that's why I'm asking, is, 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 does that play an important role in the way you use those texts, or are you silently or how do you oh, use them? No, you have to, the, the sole purpose of these texts is to trigger a, a, an altered state. And I'm utilizing, you know, historical aspects, the intonation of, of the word. So whether you're singing it or you're intoning it, this is a proven phenomenon. In fact, hypnotists use this to, Uh, produce an altered state by speaking in a certain way. And, and a lot of, uh, interestingly enough, a lot of uh, evangelical Christian ministers, they, they use this technique and they may not even know it, but it's, it's the meter in which they speak and they, they can hypnotize uh, the congregation, mm -hmm. so to speak. So, yeah, the sole purpose of, of these texts is not to be You know, read silently. You're to read them aloud and read them in a call and response manner. the The format is, um, again, from a, a mythopoetic standpoint. So while you're encountering these gods, you're reading their passages or reading their dialogue, and uh, silently, and then responding in turn. And this actually follows a a traditional historical. Uh, literary format. So you have a certain type of format called a ball bail, and that is essentially like a rhyming couplet, a, a song, mm -hmm. um, almost like a bar song, a tavern song. And then you have uh, a damanduga, which is a debate uh, form of literature. So there are two figures that are debating with each other. In this case, it would be the reader debating with the God as to what their merit is in order to go through these rituals. And, you know, at the very end, uh, 
take ownership, so to speak, or stewardship of the rod and ring. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Well, thank you so much, uh, Samuel, for this exciting uh, 66 minutes that we had together here. <laughs> thank you for having me. Um, um, a final word to our audience, maybe? A final word to our audience. Uh, may your words uh, be as the command of heaven, and may the works of your hands stand as a lasting testament to the glory of the gods and to your legacy. Thank you, Samuel. Bye for now.
Pyramids of Light by Hassan Ismail. Third piece uh, that we heard from him today after Surreal and from Tigris to Euphrates. Now, Pyramids of Light. Thanks again, Hassan, for providing me this music and letting me play it. And uh, well, thanks a lot to Samuel David for a lovely interview and um, really a field that I didn't know much about myself in the first place. And I gather many of you were in the same position as I, and we, it was very joyful and interesting to hear about Sumerian religion as such and how you can even use it for your religious purpose today. Rod and Drink by Anathema Press, that was the origin of the encounter I had with Samuel. So if you're interested in that, go and get his book. It's You can find the link on the website thoughtshermes.com in the show notes. It's not on Amazon, so you have to get it through other channels, but I will provide you with the information when you go on the website. Right, this brings this week's episode to an end. Thank you for listening. It was great to have you and I hope to have you back again next week. And next week, I have a very special guest. It's uh, something that we have not yet done a lot here on this show, but uh, I'm going to uh, interview an artist, a visual artist, actually an installation artist. Her name is Bianca Bondi. She's a young artist from South Africa, living in France now. And I got to know her through a friend, a listener of this show, who sent me links to her work and also to a couple of interviews that she gave. And the links showed me and the interviews I listened to showed me that she was really deeply inspired by nature, but also by animism, by occultism, and by uh, healing practices, spiritualism. So all things that concern us here on the Western esoteric tradition. And so I contacted Bianca and she was delighted to come on this show. Um, so I'll tell you more about it, of course, next week. Uh, but look forward to hear Bianca Bondi and also see her work a bit on the website. I'll do a more extended version of the show notes next week. Okay, so... Thanks for listening once again and have a safe week. Come back healthy and safe next week to listen to Bianca Bondi and myself. And for today, what can I say? Take care. Stay tuned. Hear you soon.